0: The Dow long from long way from 10% correction, negative 4%, maybe negative 5%. And the VIX set measurement 22.32, it was above 23. To put that in perspective, in the great markets, the VIX is 12. 13 maybe you expand out in the new regime of the vix to 17 or 18 and we come out as well we have the perfect guest to frame this this morning drew mattis uh, not only with his clarion and award-winning economic work for years but it met life now driving forward their strategy as well drew mattis dovetail your equity strategy into your first class economics how do you fit those two together right now
1: well, I, you know, I, I think what you're seeing, um, so there's there's two factors. One is just kind of the risk on, risk off, which we've talked about. Everyone decided they didn't want to be long over the weekend. That seemed to have been the right call this time. Um, and so uh, people went risk off and, and it, they were rewarded for it. Um, I think if you look ahead we were kind of drifting in this environment where where margin compression was beginning to happen it looked like uh, in our view at least corporations were going begin to pull back on hiring and we were going to drift into a recession sometime in kind of like the middle of next year that seemed to be our, you know that was the scenario we were working with uh, in the current environment you have to you have to maybe be pulling that forward a little bit and thinking to yourself you know if these trends continue in terms of disruptions to supply chains uh, that you know maybe um, maybe those margins compress a little faster maybe firms pull back a little faster Faster. Maybe they're disinclined to invest heading into something where they have as much uncertainty as the average consumer has.
2: Drew, is the concept of a V-shaped recovery dead? Uh,
1: I no, I but I, I think you know it, it requires the right kind of, of construct. But I, I think what, what you're pointing towards, though, is, is something that I think a lot of people have focused on, which is um, for the vast majority of people not the vast majority of people, but for a lot of people and for, I think, the vast majority of people on Wall Street, actually, who actually are, are charged with trading, uh, 2008 is the recession they know. That's the only recession they know. They don't remember 2001, where if you blinked, you could have missed it. Um, they don't remember kind of the slowdown 94, 95. Um, so, you know, the, the actual life experience for a lot of people on Wall Street, it, it doesn't include recessions that don't look like 2008. And, and so, I don't think a 2008 V-shaped recovery, I don't think a a V-shaped recovery is dead, but you're not gonna get one if you have a recession like 2008. Fortunately, we're not expecting one like 2008.
3: So Drew, I mean, a lot of times, we've been talking over the last week or two as this coronavirus kind of evolved, and we saw a lot of impact, say, in the commodity markets, in the bond market. We didn't necessarily see a concern consistent in the equity markets. Maybe we're seeing a little bit of it today. Are you concerned that maybe the equity markets is not are not discounting the long-term economic impacts of what a coronavirus could mean?
1: Uh, you know, I, I think that they're struggling with it, and I think that's that's the problem is this, uh, it's very hard to assign weighted probabilities to all the different outcomes because there are so many potential outcomes Uh, And then if you take that sector by sector and company by company, you you just you you could drive yourself nuts uh, going through the permutations. Um, And so people then just go into, uh, do I want to be long the market? Do I want to be short the market? And people are now saying, hey, you know what? I don't want to be long it because I don't know what's going on. And and I think that kind of environment is going to continue.
2: So I'm I'm struggling, though, because I'm looking right now at the Fed model. This has been one of the big arguments for why to buy stocks, that basically bond yields go lower, making the relative valuation case for stocks uh, better. Today, that valuation case got a whole lot better even still as 30-year Treasury yields go further into record low territory. Why shouldn't people buy this dip?
1: Well, it's not a – so we don't really focus on equities in my life, but I'll just, I'll just say this. This is why you can't just blindly follow models, right? The question is the relationship is a good and an interesting one to, to use as a factor, right. right? So a component to your model. But if you just close your eyes and say it doesn't matter why the bond yields going down, then you're going to put yourself into a situation where you're taking more risks than you ever thought was possible uh, and you're, and you're right. blind to it. Uh, because you're following this model that just works off of why the yield is moving, or that the yield is moving, rather than why is the yield moving, and that's uh-huh. that, that's why I don't really worry about artificial intelligence. You know, like I play my son in, in you know uh, in FIFA, and it's like the AI never does what I want it to do, um, and no, and, just and just, I'm thinking to myself, it, 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 it can't even, it can't even run the soccer program. Does that it I'm explain trying to, why the tots to got
0: crushed by Chelsea <laughs> this weekend? Sure, blame AI for the failure. <laughs> no, but
1: my son was happy to see the Blues trying. John, over, over Tottenham
0: uh, oh really thank you yeah. I mean John emails in where's John John emails in from Turks and Caicos sure no excuse me Antigua uh, yeah of course it's more you know it's fancier yeah. pharaoh he wanted he brought this up Chelsea like crushed the tots this weekend Farrell's not even Lisa's like what (laughs) I'm learning I'm studying you you, yeah she's yeah so am I (laughs) (laughs) let me tell you every day this is really critical you say that MetLife isn't focused on uh, stocks that's because it's an adult house focused on our futures do you assume going to work every day that your actuarial assumption is going to come down and that that locked in bogey rate that we have is not going to be six percent but it's going to come down down down
1: yeah, you know, I I think what we assume is um, we have to plan for every environment that we can imagine, um, and uh, I think when you think about the the current world we've been in for a long time, we've been in a very low rate environment for a very long period of time, and I think you know the, the ongoing assumption uh, you know has been you know you can't expect just because you want yields to move higher, you can't expect that they are going to move higher.
3: Do you sell junk bonds here?
1: <laughs> uh, you know, I, I leave that to our
3: credit portfolio managers. <laughs> How about so? All right, we're more than eighty percent away through the earnings this quarter. What are your key takeaways here? Do you feel a little bit better? Do you feel a little bit more
1: concerned? The, the last time I looked at earnings, what, what you know, so one of our one of our thoughts is, you know, when you're trying to time the recession, how do you time it? And, and the way that I'm, I'm trying to work it is looking at the erosion of margins in the economy as a right. whole, so not just S and P five hundred. So, but if we look at if we look at those earnings numbers, I'm seeing revenue go up, and I'm seeing, uh, you know. Um, earnings go up by less. And so that tells me that the yep. margins are compressing a little bit further. So it's consistent with our view that that erosion is continuing. Um, and that's, you know, it, you know, absent other factors, <clears throat> it still looks to me like 2021 is when we have to really think about there being a recession in the US.
0: Drew Mattis, thank you so much for that light. Right now in politics, and we'll be jumping back and forth on this into the Tuesday uh, debate in South Carolina. Todd Mariano joins us from Eurasia Group. Todd, every weekend I go, I have a panic, and I go, I got to get smarter fast on something. And without question, off of Mr. Sanders' relative uh, performance in Las Vegas and Nevada, um, I had to read in on the Latino vote. Latino vote, help me here. Uh, uh, how important will Latino vote be Super Tuesday?
4: Good morning Tom great to be with you as always and uh, I think we're all in that same camp these days given uh, all that's going on in politics trying to get smart on things over the weekend. The Latino vote is you know it's, it's something that's become of increasing importance to u s politics generally uh, but of critical importance to winning the democratic nomination and Nevada showed that very clearly but um, you know, we've known that for several cycles now. What I think is different here in Nevada is the fact that a candidate like Sanders could come out with entrance polls, you know, uh, indicating that he had above fifty percent of Latino votes. Yeah. He struggled with minority votes the last time around, and again, as we said, we've known for several cycles that Latino vote is growing. That's places like, you know, South Carolina, Texas, obviously, right. you know, but uh, across the South and even the Midwest. <clears throat> so the fact that a candidate like Sanders can right. get that kind of draw, I think is a real important lesson
5: in Nevada.
0: The money question this morning, Greg Villier wrote it up, I know you've been looking at it as well, is if Senator Sanders prevails, is a Democratic House at risk?
4: I think it is at risk. You know, what? what exactly that risk is, um, kind of remains to be determined. It's still it's still early to say, but I mean I think the fact that it's at least at risk is what's motivating a lot of Democratic leaders and the elites of the party to have feared a Bernie Sanders candidacy, you know, from from the get go from 2016 on, and certainly continuing through this cycle. Um, you know, you you don't look at the national. Level there, you look on a district by district basis where you know Republicans are going to hammer a message, an anti-socialist message, and in places like, for example, the Virginia seventh district, uh, which which was flipped very very famously in 2018, um, that message will probably resonate. So it's it's at least at risk. What we don't know is how many new people and disaffected voters Bernie could turn out at the polls. That's that's the real argument behind his candidacy, but the risk is clearly there.
3: So, Todd, what's ex- what's at stake on the debate tomorrow in South Carolina? Number
4: one, I think that um, uh, Michael Bloomberg certainly has uh, has you know some some work to do. I think to uh, to get past the you know what what happened last week and. and you know, many indications that that certainly can happen. We've we've seen that before. Uh, You know, Joe Biden, another, needs another, I think, strong debate performance to uh, solidify his lead in in South Carolina. Last year, Biden's lead in South Carolina was, you know, double digits, getting into the 20s at points. And, you know, on average, he's up about three points uh, over Sanders now. So, that's good news for Biden if he can take home a South Carolina win heading into Super Tuesday. But the fact that it's so close means that um, certainly the, I think there's more uh, pressure on him in, in this debate than before. The third thing I'd say is whether the candidates can really kind of circle the wagons and attack Bernie Sanders. If they really don't want him to be the nominee, I think it behooves them to stop uh, fighting among themselves for, you know, say, the, the moderate vote. And uh, and and turn on him, but there's there's certainly a sense uh, among campaign strategists that it that it might be too late.
2: Todd, you mentioned Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the owner of this radio station and Bloomberg News, and I am wondering if this is a make it or break it moment for him, given that he was widely panned in his performance at the last debate.
4: I don't think it's make it or break it for him because he is. He's self-financed, uh, number one, and all along he's had a a Super Tuesday strategy. So the real make or break for him, I, I think, comes, uh, on Tuesday where he's already made, you know, very significant inroads across, uh, a whole host of states that, um, know that it's been a little bit surprising and I think a reflection of uh, the weakness of some other candidates in the race and just the undecidedness of Democratic voters in in general but it's it's clearly a very important moment for him I think to keep that uh, momentum going uh, facing you know the American public uh, again which he had not uh, you know up until the debate last week
3: so Todd you know if I'm the Democratic National Committee, if I'm the establishment, the Democratic establishment, how am I thinking about Bernie Sanders here, to the extent that he is the front runner and his potential in November? I
4: think I think you're very worried, you know, quite frankly, because uh, the the argument for Bernie is that he could be like Trump in in 2016, and you know, the the sort of anti-establishment vote could confound expectations. And you know, provide a lot of surprise uh, in this in this race. But the reason you're worried is that Bernie is so much more extreme, you know, across the board uh, than than Trump ever was. Trump has you know many positions which are very uh, orthodox Republican views on you know yeah. uh, economic policy, judges, things like that. <clears throat> Bernie, there's not an issue out there. On um, which he's not extreme, so they're they're very nervous because, again, like I was saying, that argument for his candidacy uh, well, is completely untested. This, I
0: mean, this came up over cocktails last night, you know, and uh, Todd Mariano with us with Eurasia Group right now. I mean, who of the candidates would you see dovetail with Senator Sanders if he tries to put together a ticket? I mean, I, I mean, it's ridiculous to talk about a vice presidential prospect right now. I get that, but. Are all of these different candidates so removed from his democratic socialism that they would be uncomfortable even standing with him?
4: I think most of them would be. And so, you know, again, you could you could see something very similar to to Trump 2016, where Bernie would be reaching beyond, you know, the, the usual backbench, the usual names that are that are floated here Um I mean, you know, people talk about a, a potential Warren Sanders ticket. I, I myself think, uh, you know, Sanders would probably look for, you know, right. a, a little bit more diversity in, in the ticket. But, uh, you know, in terms of policy positions, the establishment will pressure him to moderate. I think Bernie could credibly argue that he hasn't gotten this far by moderating. It, is there any Is the there any person.
0: history of Senator Sanders quote-unquote moderating?
4: Uh, if if there is it's not significant and um, and I'm not aware of it you know his his views are are very similar to you know what they what they were in the 1980s what you hear sometimes is that his support for certain groups especially in foreign policy has you know has moderated versus some of the people he was supporting in the 1980s uh, which we'll hear plenty about if he is the nominee against Trump. Yeah, you from, mean like Latin Latin
0: dictatorships and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. Well, closet. but
2: Todd, there's a question here, too, about momentum and how much momentum the Democrats have or don't have due to how big the field is. Who are the next candidates that you expect to drop out?
4: I think the spotlight is really on Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. Uh, for me, I think Pete Buttigieg probably has enough money to stay in through Super Tuesday, uh, Elizabeth Warren probably does as well, but you know, unlike Buttigieg, who at least had good results in Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, Warren has been you know sort of uh, relegated in in the rankings so far. I think that's why you saw her pivot back to sort of pr- protecting the progressive agenda in the debate, rather than necessarily, uh, you know, selling her own candidacy. There's not really a state on Super Tuesday in which she uh, is is very likely to win. She's competitive in her home state of Massachusetts. Klobuchar is also competitive in Minnesota, which votes Super Tuesday. Um, but both of them, I think the odds are against their, uh, their candidacies going a lot further. The trouble there is that, um, you know, that's not going to provide much of a tailwind for the other candidates in the race, simply because they're not, um, you know, uh, grabbing a whole lot of vote share at the moment, anyway.
0: Let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Todd Mariano, thank you so much for the briefing here as all everybody tries to adjust digest rather what we saw Saturday and onto that CBS uh, debate Tuesday uh, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Our focus this morning, as in the last twelve hours, has been on the spread of the virus and the let's be clear here, there's been no announced statement of epidemic to pandemic. And yet that is a source of conversation this morning. We need a briefing now on China and get that in Beijing from our Selena uh, Wang. Selena, uh, Selena, very simply here. Is there a better outlook on a Monday into your Tuesday in China? Well, Tom, the
6: only outlook that seems to be somewhat improving is that the rate of new cases in Hubei Province in China do seem to be stabilizing. But as you said, the conversation is now growing around whether or not the World Health Organization escalates this from an international public health emergency to a global pandemic, which essentially means a, a sustained string of cases outside of that outbreak area. And because there's are seeing an increase in cases outside of China and Italy, new cases emerging in the Middle East, a very a strong ramp up of cases in South Korea that does beg the question of just how much faster this is going to continue to accelerate outside of the center of the outbreak.
2: Selena, can you put that into perspective when we hear about a reopening of some of the previously quarantined areas in China? Is this because basically uh, Beijing is admitting, conceding that containment has failed?
6: So we are not seeing a reopening of the lockdown area. There was a bit of confusion. So essentially, at first, China had released a statement allowing some travel for non-residents outside of Wuhan. But then that was very shortly reversed. Top officials said that that was not authorized. That was a mistake. So, this has brought a lot of continued confusion after Hubei province has changed their counting methodology multiple times over the past month as well. But to put things into perspective, there are now more than 77,000 cases in China. This is still the vast majority of total cases around the world. You do still have sweeping crackdowns in terms of travel restrictions and quarantines across the country. You have seen some provinces ease that slightly, but overall people's travel and movement are still restricted across the country.
3: So Selena, give us a sense of um, one of the areas that we've been seeing some reporting recently is this concept of getting back to work in China. What is the expectation of the government of trying to ramp up production, get people back into the factories, back to work? Where are we in that regard?
6: Yeah, exactly. That's a really big problem right now is trying to get those migrant workers that are stuck in their hometowns to get back to their place of work. For instance, in Beijing, they had earlier instituted this 14-day quarantine for people who were coming back from places outside of Beijing. So a lot of people have, A, trouble getting out of their city, but B, also are worried that once when they get to where they need to be, that they're going to have to be self-quarantined again. So that's been a really big problem. So according to Bloomberg Economics, China's economy was only running about half of its capacity over the past week and a lot of these companies as well are having trouble paying their employees right. in fact a survey of small and medium-sized companies in china said that only a third of them had enough cash to cover fixed
0: expenses for a month what do you see on the streets i mean selena through the weekend in india all day monday now it's there uh let's call it 7 p.m uh, almost 8 p.m monday evening what did you actually observe on the streets this weekend
6: Well, it's really interesting because across Beijing, different communities have different levels of activity. So around where I live, it's a pretty commercial district, and it's still very quiet. A lot of shops and restaurants are still closed. Everybody is required to wear masks outside. A lot of big public gatherings are are not allowed to occur. And if you walk east, when I just went over the weekend went east to Log mall, and there were some more residential areas, you actually started to see more movement on the streets and actually some of the public parks were quite crowded. I went to Riton Park on the east side and there were a lot of actually elderly folks still exercising and walking out and about, which the government does not encourage that, but people are really getting sick and yeah. tired of being stuck inside all day.
0: Selena, thank you so much. Love that anecdotal work from Beijing as well. Selena Wang reporting from Beijing. Let's dive into a global Wall Street conversation. And this really works to Lisa's theme uh, this morning, which is catharsis. Stuart Kaiser writes exceptionally detailed notes for UBS on the moments of the market. This is the mathematics. You know the bell curve in high school, folks. And then there's a squishiness to the bell curve, which is variance. In a thing called skewness or skewedness, if you're British, and then this thing called kurtosis, which is not the mold in your feet right now. Do you have any idea, Mr. Kaiser, where the cross moments are right now?
7: Well, I mean, obviously, this uh, the moves this morning are going to change things a little bit um, on the pricing. If you looked at it coming into this week, you know, the VIX curve had flattened out which is sort of what happens when the market's a little bit confused about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're going to see today, which we are seeing is the curve getting very steeply inverted. And effectively, if you think of what the VIX is, the VIX is a 25 Delta put implied volatility loosely, which is telling right. you it's the price for protection uh, to hedge your portfolio. Right. And that's back above 20. So you know, what you're seeing is a very big bid for skew and that's happening in the U S that tends to happen this in the S and P.
0: This is great. I mean, this might as well be jargon at a hockey game as well. <laughs> Al from New Jersey's out in the garden state parkway and drove off the road through three times on that. (laughs) Let's unpack what you said in English. The bottom line is guys like you look at the dynamics of the volatility of the S&P 500 as a guesstimate of confidence in the market. Did I get that right?
7: Yeah, so the VIX is gonna tell you two things. It's gonna tell you how concerned people are, i.e. how much they're willing to pay for insurance. And then because there's a term structure, they'll tell you when they want that insurance. And what you see when the market is really, really stressed like it is today is they want insurance really badly and they want it immediate... Oh,
0: but come on. This isn't August <laughs> of 2007 or August of 1998. I mean, how stressed is stress today? Sweeney's, you know, got... You, you, you get
3: through, I'm buying on the dip, Your huh? broker's on the phone. You're, <laughs> yeah.
0: you're about ready to do a Tom Keeney go all to cash, right? How stressed look, are we?
7: Look, I think there's there's... Three aspects to this. The first is uh, the psychology part, which which Amy touched on, which is when we got the initial sell off on China, it was relatively. It's, relative, Lisa. What, it's Lisa.
0: Amy's Amy, oh. <laughs> Amy's in last week.
2: It's okay. You can call <laughs> me um, Amy. Amy. It's two syllables. It works.
0: Amy, so, so I apologize. What um, you gonna do? <laughs> I
7: Keep
2: singing, Tom. Uh, Carry so, on, story. So
7: so what happened in late January was the market didn't sell off very much, and that suggested a buy the dip mentality. Um, we think that also might have been impacted by. the the fact that people had already hedged their portfolios against election risk, because you had all that coming in early February. The second thing is what's going on with growth. And last week, what we saw in Europe was the PMIs printed strong, but within the PMIs was a very long increase in delivery times. Typically, that's read as positive for growth. We actually read that as negative for growth because what that means today is that the supply chains are getting massively disrupted. The third part is, you know, what's going on from a global perspective, and you know, this has now um, affected the West and it's in Europe. So that's going to, you know, hit a third aspect of it. So you're seeing three sort of impacts, I think, on the market.
2: So from a technical perspective, there's a question: Do you sell your holdings if this is going to be temporary? How much do you look at the VIX curve? How much do you look at what people are doing there? as a way of hedging without selling, sort of the the knee-jerk response that could give some sense of just how much fear could end up bleeding into the market and causing forced sales.
7: Yeah, look, I I mean, I I think the mentality of the market is probably still to buy the dip. But when you see these types of moves in the market, I mean, the S&P is down almost two and a half percent overnight. I think the worst sell-off we had in January was probably one to one and a half percent. So this is a different degree of it. So I think generally speaking, what you're probably going to see is people keep their core portfolio intact and hedge it um, unless and until. (laughs) So then,
2: in other words, how much do you have to see the VIX spike up from here? Right now, at one point, it was the most since 2018. How much more do we have to see before we really are starting to feel the capitulation, the catharsis at least expressed in derivatives?
7: I think from my perspective, you know, come and talk to me when it's on a 25 or 30 handle. Um, and I think that that type of level suggests yeah. like indiscriminate indiscriminate hedging. What's a bet stuff?
0: in the market right now? I mean, Paul, help me here. The, the, the idea that we've seen is institutional money has been comfortable in bonds and cash and has been reticent to pile into equities. Is that a generally correct statement? I
3: think so. I'm, I'm looking at the 10-year, 10, 10 1, 139, Tom. What do, what do you do? Well, I mean,
0: what's the, what's the bet on the street right now around the derivative strategies you live in every day?
7: I mean what are people putting on yeah um, look please. i think i think what you've actually seen that's, see, that's yeah, wall street
0: simmons is taking over prada so that'll be <laughs> interesting go ahead
7: i would say i what i think you've seen more generally is two things one some hedging usually or mostly around election risks and the second is people frankly buying upside in more cyclical parts of the market on the assumption that U.S. growth is going to bottom at the end of the first quarter or the early second quarter, and this China thing is going to be temporary, and I want exposure to that. Let's go
0: Greek letter right now. How are you managing gamma right now, the second derivative, the accelerations in the market? Are you thrilled to buy gamma and believe we're going to accelerate, or are you selling it, bringing in premium because you think the acceleration call is wrong?
7: I think it, it's a very hard thing to estimate what the net gamma position is. But on Monday I would say, yeah, we do that. We're all yeah, yeah. gamma on Monday. Gamma. Monday so. Net gamma. I, I would say that generally the street has probably been caught short gamma for the most uh, excuse, me. Love that. Uh, um, excuse me. I Excuse me. The market has generally been caught long gamma. The street has, and the reason what happens when that happens say. is when the market moves, you have selling. <laughs> uh, when the market moves up, you have selling. The market moves down, you have buying. And that's one of the reasons the market has been so well behaved recently because the street has kind of been in that position. And will that could. change today? I, it could. You know, I we're mean.
0: busting chops here, folks. But Stuart Kai's just killing it here on how adults <laughs> on Wall Street talk long gamma. They did flock of seagulls like no one. <laughs> <laughs>
3: All right, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. Uh, what am I buying here today? What do you think? What are you seeing on your desk? You know, you, you know, maybe over the last several days, are people kind of going out on the risk curve? Or are they saying I'm pulling in my horns? I'm kind of going conservatives from, from an equity perspective. I
7: think people were moving up the risk curve until the middle of last week, okay. and the the Apple news last week uh, caught people, I think, a little bit wrong footed. And the reason I say that is because most people expected this to be a very sharp V shaped recovery, <laughs> and the Apple you know the, the speed with which they were willing to cut or you know say we're going to miss our guidance basically in less than 2 weeks i think people say wait yeah. a second is this going to be a deeper pullback or perhaps a right. more pronounced pullback than i expected if a company of that size is willing to move their guidance that quickly so i think that was kind of the shot across the bow and now what you see in the last couple of days is obviously a different but a, an acceleration yeah. or an expansion of that
0: this has been wonderful stuart kaiser thank you so much with ubs really adult report we again we protect the copyright of all of our guests if you you want this exquisite mathematics from UBS, get it from uh, UBS. Mr. Kaiser had a derivatives uh, there with us. Right now, we start strong with Christina Hooper. She is uh, with Strategy at Invesco. Christina, Narayana Kachalakota published in Bloomberg Opinion in the last hour a very important statement. This from the former head of the Minneapolis Fed and now at Rochester, one of our great mathematicians, great students of the dynamics of the economy. He says the Fed can't wait. They should cut rates now. He even says 25 or 50 basis points. What's the urgency of the Fed to accommodate this virus?
8: I'm not sure there should be an urgency of the Fed. I think a lot of it has to do with business confidence. And if we do see an erosion there, that's when the Fed does need to step in, at least to make um, more statements that suggest that it stands ready to provide an insurance cut for the purposes of yeah. fending off the negative impact of, of the coronavirus. I don't, I don't think there's a sense of urgency yet, although mm. there does seem to be a feeling of panic. I know earlier today you talked about how it felt like a controlled sell-off. I think yeah, it's that changed. spun a bit out of control. I think that's spun yeah. a bit out of control since then. Exactly. And so uh, I think that the Fed has to be measured and thoughtful. It right. can't be completely reactionary, but it's clearly um, right. suggested that it's willing to provide insurance cuts just by its behavior last year.
0: And the way we triangulate that, folks, on the Bloomberg, I've got the Bloomberg launch pad in front of me. It's got probably 150 data points. As you triangulate, Paul, certain away from the blunt instrument of the vix at 23.21 the tape a little better in the last 15 minutes i triangulate by looking at stronger yen. And critically, Paul, to Christina's perfect point of how we've given away to a little bit of sweat, NYMEX crude, the West Texas intermediate, was a solid 51. It's now 50.95, down $2.43. So that's oil
3: giving way as well. Yeah, that's down 4.5%, so clearly reflecting potentially slower global growth. Christina, so when you look at the price performance this morning. Is this healthy? Is this a reasonable reaction to what is a dynamic story as it relates to the coronavirus?
8: Well, I think it may not be reasonable, but it is perfectly understandable given that markets in the short term are voting machines and only in the longer term are weighing machines. So I think it's, it's perfectly understandable and not surprising. What I'm a bit more surprised about is what we've seen with the plummet in uh, yields on Treasuries. Uh, to see where the 10-year is, where the 30-year is, is a bit surprising, especially since I've always believed that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is a better fear gauge than the VIX. Um, but I will tell you, I'll give you the caveat that the 10-year does not have medical training, and I think that's an important point to make.
0: <laughs> well, we'll leave it there. Christina Hooper, way too short today, but uh, very, very valuable. And, of course, uh, she is with uh, Invesco. What we're going to do as we drive forward through this half hour of our special coverage with, did we get the negative 1,000? I don't, I think, we don't think we did. I don't think we did if it was our first We split. bounced up 100 points, negative 859 now on the Dow. Uh, that We're going to bring in a select number of guests, all of them with different views. Cameron Christ joins us now with Bloomberg, and of course, he has a wonderful ability to synthesize correlation into all this. Cameron, what do you see within the correlations of the market?
5: Well, I mean, right now, everything is uh, uh, is pricing fair, right? Um, for the equity market, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, obviously, we had last month's episode, but uh, it was only a few days ago. This time last week, we were pretty much in the ding-dong highs. Um Treasury uh, or government bonds I've been fairly consistent since the whole virus thing um, broke. Uh, pricing risk aversion, I think, as the previous guest, um, guest mentioned. And the, the interesting nexus in between the two is credit, yeah. um, where I think you can argue that high yield for the moment is trading like a government bond. Um, and that is pretty unsustainable if there is uh, a legitimate economic hit um, that spreads from the, from, from the virus. That looks like a particular point of vulnerability to
0: me. How does factor investing play into this? Paul just mentioned, you know, it can be the virus or it can be other things as well. When you look at the, the vogue of momentum or value or style investment and all the other almost marketing ideas wrapped around a legitimate finance theory called factors, how do factors play in when you see a four or 5% drop from the top on equities?
5: Well, I think what's happening is that you've got uh, an increasing number of investors piling in to an increasingly narrow range of names, um, whether it's hedge funds or retail, uh, kind of everybody has decided that big cap tech um, is where to be. And it ticks a lot of the boxes that you see in terms of these factors, certainly in terms of momentum, uh, in terms of growth, which, as we know, has trounced um, value And insofar as the human animal is ultimately a momentum-based animal, uh, deducing that that which happened yesterday and that which happens today is likely to happen tomorrow, um, that we've got everyone kind of long these these uh, relatively narrow basket of names. The risk, obviously, is if it goes wrong, um, that the exit door might not be sufficiently large to accommodate Everyone who wants to get out at the same time, and um, the upshot, I think, is that liquidity is going to be is going to, is going to be at at a, 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 a premium, and the volatility of volatility uh, is yeah. going to remain elevated.
0: That's very important, folks. That phrase of volatility, the volatility is, uh, Mr. Christ gets a little. Matthew Paul, let me frame. Uh, uh, here where we are on the opening we're down 5.4 percent from the recent highs of middle february i think that will be called the valentine day high and after that the massacre uh, <laughs> and a correction on the dow is if i can get the the fame cursor out 26,600 yep it would be a traditional correction right we're uh 1500 points above that right we're down now 801 points
3: Luke Kawa just darkened the door, as you like to say, Tom. Luke Kawa, Bloomberg News, cross-asset reporter, joining us with the uh, uh, Cameron crisis as well. So, Luke, kind of a uh, rocky opening to the market, a little bit of a new view, it seems like, from financial markets on the potential risk of this corona crisis. What are your early thoughts here as we're you know about eight minutes into the opening of the cash equities markets?
9: Oh, many, many assorted thoughts. So let's start with... Uh Mark Dow of uh, Dow Global Advisors, is frequent market commentator, former IMF economist, he's pointed out a lot of the times that markets have this tendency to have belated overreaction. So we all know what the event is. Not many facts about the event have changed. There's a lot of unknowns. But then we just freak out later anyways rather than when we first hear about it. This strikes me as quite memorable compared to the Chinese devaluation. That did not happen at the end of August 2015. That happened, what, August 10th, 12th. And yet it took, you know, a couple so, weeks later before we opened limit down, second of which, which ties into this, the the strictures of the options market and how that leads to realized volatility. Last Friday was options expiry when you have all of that open interest right. in strikes hanging around, and then it completely falls off the table. This is freedom to move, and what you're seeing this morning is definitely uh, freedom to move to the downside.
0: Lukawa and Cameron Christ with us with down negative seven seven two, the VIX twenty two point three four for a better tape in the last five minutes here off an ugly, almost down 1000 opening. To the both of you, and and Luke, let me start uh, with you right now. What do institutions do when they see this drop? I mean, they're in cash, are they deploying now? Or do they measure the mood, the catharsis? Do they revert to technical analysis? What do they do where they say, here's the entry point?
9: Well, are they really in cash is is the first question. And if you've looked at, you know, like S&P 500, if you look at the asset managers uh, in the CFTC and their allocation to stocks, that's those numbers in terms of what we get are actually quite high. So the the real question would be is I think is how much is institutional dumping on this and joining the party. And by the fact that what you're seeing from this phase of the coronavirus correction, that's different from the late January one is all of your beloved stocks are joining in and not only joining in, they're leading to the downside. So, you know, if you were all up in Microsoft, if you were all up in Apple, all up in those expensive tech stocks, especially in software, those are the ones that are getting hit more now, which does suggest that, you know, there is a, uh, a bit more of an active selling component and cutting even exposure to the stocks you love that is taking place this time around.
3: So Cameron Christ, I'm looking at the three months to the 10-year treasury, uh, minus 7 17 here, down eight and a half points today. Is that what is that telling us? Should we really pay close attention to that? Because we've seen that go negative in the past with no real implications.
5: Yeah, I mean that curve I don't think is particularly useful on a sort of very, very high frequency basis, because really it's just telling what the tenure does. Because um three month bills don't really you know, three month bill yields don't really um, don't really move so much. Twos, tens, uh, perhaps offers a little more forward-looking um, uh, color. And uh, it's interesting that, that curve hasn't really moved at all today. It's been a parallel shift yes. um, to the to, to the downside. Well, which... what is it,
0: Cameron? That's well said. What is a parallel shift where all yields go down? What does that signal to a Fed? I mean, is, is that signaling to them enough I mean, of a shock where they need signals... to act? <laughs>
5: Signals cut rates and keep them down. Um, now, I think you could make a pretty good argument that rate cuts, um, while they might cheer up um, equity investors temporarily, would have uh, a, a vanishingly small impact on on the real economy. Um, you know, yeah. not only in the United States, but sort of in the rest of the world. Um, you know, uh, you know, in terms of the the previous discussion of what's actually changed. Well, I think something has changed, which is that you've started to see an economic impact extend beyond China's borders. Um, you yeah. know, for Venice to, to cancel the carnival is, I mean, they're not doing that because interest rates are too high. They're doing it as a public health scare. Um, schools are closing. That's something that, that I think has uh, impacted uh, or infected, if you will, um, yeah. uh, investor, investor investor consciousness because it, it was kind of easy to write off um, right. as an ephemeral thing or a contained thing It was contained within China. But when you're starting to see business um, and the economy being impacted outside of China, then it's kind of like who let the dogs out and and how do we yeah. get them back in the cage? And that's, a, that's a, a more difficult proposition.
0: Kevin Christ, thank you so much for joining us on short notice today with Bloomberg, of course, uh, looking particularly at the cross-asset space. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keane, worldwide uh, with our special coverage. We are, without commercial interruption, in this special half hour, getting the markets open. We opened near negative 1,000 on the Dow, now negative 837. Down we went, captured the bid, bounced back up, and we ebbed back a little bit with a VIX. was a 24 handle, now 22.78. The yield is in 10 basis points. We were in 11 earlier, 1.36 Seven two on the ten year yield. Luke, it, as a general, you know, I, I make jokes about your three Bloomberg's, but it's true.
9: It isn't. What is? <laughs> what is <laughs>
0: that's a hell of a monthly bill, and, and we say thank you. Uh, what uh, What do you see right now off your Bloomberg screen? Like, what's the the delineating feature of panic or critically non panic?
9: I. I To me it'll still be kind of the the starting point where we were for this and how quickly things change so like equity put call ratios in terms of the volumes traded on the put side versus the call side they've been below one pretty much every day this year aka more calls changing hands than puts i i want to see how dramatically something like that changes Just like, I want to see not only does the greed disappear, but also does the demand for protection really skyrocket? Because, Really, you haven't had both things happen consistently even in late January.
0: He's so 70s. He's like Wall Street. And he's wearing a shirt today that could have been worn with Lou on Wall Street. <laughs> Gordon Gecko. <laughs> that's Gekko. a shirt, that's a shirt Michael look. Holland would have worn 20 years ago. It's got it's, the blue stripe. It's got the Larry Kudlow statement blue stripe shirt with a white collar I, I,
9: this, going. This is my Kevin Cir- Cirilli special. I think. It's, it's he he can pull, pull off something like this. It's
0: very, it's very fashion forward. Or one of the two. Quarterback. <laughs>
3: Hey, Tom, joining uh, us with Luke Kawa, we have Gina Martin-Adams. Uh, she's our strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us she, uh, she sense. a sense. were bar on 3rd Avenue? I think so, yes. Yeah, that's kind of where she was. So, uh, Gina, thanks so much for joining us. Give us your perspective on this uh, opening here and what may be different here uh, for the U.S. equity markets.
10: Well, I think the equity market has been uh, riding on the coattails of a better-than-expected fourth-quarter earnings season. and able to therefore dismiss underlying weaknesses in the earnings stream related to coronavirus um, dampened outlook, uh, which has emerged in revisions pretty persistently. But now that earnings season is fading and you've had really strong spikes in a sort of risk-off tone across other asset classes, the equity market is following suit. So. If you actually look at the technicals of the equity market, the two-week rally that we had in early February was really running on fields anyway. It was largely supported by just a few names in tech and some defensive rotation into utilities. So it was signaling that the equity market was on fairly weak footing as it was. But I do think that the end of earnings season was inevitably going to be difficult for stocks. And we're going to go through a period of churning here. Probably a modest correction related to the fact that The economic outlook is not going to improve in the short run, and estimates are a little too high for the next couple of quarters
0: of growth. The rule of thumb, Gina, is 10% is a correction. Is that still true, or are the markets so adjusted or bollocks up right now that we're on the cusp of a correction now? Which is it?
10: You know, I think it's somewhat arbitrary, honestly, Tom. It's, you know, 10% is known as a correction, 20% is known as a bear market, Some people would say we haven't had any bear markets over the course of the last 10 years i would say we've actually had three maybe even four just based on the fact that we had very severe contractions in the equity market nearing 20 percent. so you know i think that any correction always feels somewhat difficult whether it be five percent ten percent or fifteen percent particularly when it accompanies a really strong spike in volatility and a strong risk off tone That's likely what we're in for, um, at least for the next couple of days. Just this massive rally that we saw in gold, the big rally we saw in the 30-year on Friday, would have indicated that we were in for weakness, at least in the short run here in the equity market. And I think unless you get some really, really strong earnings yeah. results from the retailers, which is highly unlikely. Yeah. It's just going to continue for the near term, kind of blowing off some of yeah. the excess that we had developed
0: earlier this year. Well, I look for a forward to your team and they're writing this afternoon from Bloomberg Intelligence. Gina Martin-Adams, head of all of our equity coverage uh, today. Paul?
10: Yeah.
3: Hey, Luke, you know, I'm looking at my commodity screen, that GLCO screen, which is just for us, you know, equity people, just the savior. And I'm seeing so much red across the commodities, uh, Space here, and is this just oh, look at that. you know the US equity markets just kind of catching up with what commodities have been telling us, which is global growth is you know tepid at best, it may even be at risk with this coronavirus. Is that kind of we're just seeing maybe a little bit of a catch up, as maybe Gina suggested?
9: Yeah, I, I totally think there's uh, you know, that's that's the way to frame it when you look at how commodities have been on a sustained basis, copper, or crude, weak for quite a while. Commodities have been showing the Demand implications of the coronavirus for quite some time. Equity markets have been focused on the temporary supply implications of the coronavirus for quite a while. So the kind of squaring that circle here is is a lot of what we see. And one one thing that's really jumping out to me right now is Please. I'm looking at implied correlations for the S and P 500. So the extent to which things are expected to move together, you know, generally in a one, crisis. How, how does
3: one do that?
9: Uh, the S P X one month I C B vol index there on you your go. term. Boom and uh, so one thing that's really struck me is this was one of the rare occasions where you had correlations spike, implied correlations spike in late January, and then immediately, immediately fade to where they were before. Generally, when you have a spike in implied correlations, it means, hey, there's some kind of macro thing going on that we're going to worry about for a while. It's going to be some kind of episode that we have to work our way through. Been the case for you know for the trade war, was the case in late 2018, was the case during the, the Chinese hard landing fears in 2015 2016. Right now, those are still probably subdued. So, if you're looking for a way for volatility yeah. to move up, it's through this conduit where we start pricing in everything moving together to the downside.
0: And I just put that up on the screen, and we're not out to four standard deviations. As a general rule, a four standard deviation move is where the sweat cl- clicks in. And we're, we're getting there. We're, getting, we're there. getting there, but we're not quite there yet.
3: So looking at the, you know, we talk a little bit about crude oil and it's down about 4% here, 4.2% to $51 a barrel. I mean, is that kind of a, is that a place where people should look for, you know, where is global growth going to be? And if I see weakness in that commodity, that's really a flag for me. I mean,
9: probably copper would be the even bigger one or the, or the complementary or, you know, at least both of them telling the same story. Uh, Yeah, it's. I would say definitely commodities are pricing in the the lower demand global growth outlook much more than any asset class has been for a while. But, hey, commodities have been financialized for quite some time more than they are necessarily indicative of supply demand conditions for real end users for quite some time. So probably more of a tendency to overshoot in both cases.
0: Very good. Was that enough jargon from Kawa? I mean, yeah,
9: I think, uh, but I learned know, a new function like, today. So, you know, that was... It, it wasn't as spent. good
0: as Stuart Kaiser from UBS today, <laughs> did, but it was pretty good. Are, are, I mean, are,
9: do we get through this without mentioning a backup goaltender? Because no. that's oh. that's that's how uh, bad things must be right now. Yes. Michael
0: Regan with us here as we look at the, he's trying to log on to the... When, when I'm we, like the backup goaltender around here. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we go driving the surveillance but, Zamboni. They told day. me off the Zamboni. Uh, when, when, when the market goes down a thousand points, Michael, can you log on? I'd rather not. I should have said, I should have worked at yeah. home. But uh. What is the color of the market? You know, Michael Regan with his folks leading just all of our intellectual coverage in Bloomberg News on the equity markets. You go into a morning call. What's the theme that you want to attack uh, here? Negative 767 on the Dow.
11: Well, I guess, you know, obviously the question on everyone's mind is going to be how bad will this get? I, it, God bless anyone who can even attempt to try to answer that. I mean, I think, obviously, the Italian outbreak is really the, the focus of, of everyone's uh, ire right now. And just looking at sort of the leadership in the stock market. Um, what do you see there? Well, a lot of that sort of the high flyers are leading your Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, the ones that were really sort of leading this this yeah. uh, rally on, on the way up. What I find interesting is looking at the healthcare stocks. They're pretty much down across the board. I mean, Gilead is up because they might have, they
0: may have the vaccine. But they, what are you seeing in Johnson? and Johnson might have knows. a well that's the thing everything's
11: down pretty uh, steeply and I find it interesting because Lest we forget, Bernie Sanders did win a pretty, a pretty big... Uh, he did better than good. Better than my good. He,
0: my, my head was 39%, folks, and he's clocking here with like 47%. Yeah.
11: So I'm, I would be curious. It's hard to isolate uh, what is happening to, say, the managed care stocks. United Healthcare is down like 7%. So obviously that you know okay. could could be a well lot said. of the coronavirus well fear, but you also got to wonder if Bernie is in the market a little bit too. I don't know. Yeah. But um, it's hard to yeah. separate the two because obviously a coronavirus oh. is not going to be good for your, your healthcare stocks. But neither is Bernie. So, um, uh, you know, I I would love to see what this market was would look like this morning if it had just been the Bernie news over the Um, weekend and not the not the virus.
0: Michael Regan uh, with us and and he'll continue on Bloomberg Radio with reports through the day. Right now, we have to digress for our global audience for something that was absolutely extraordinary this weekend. there has been a lot of coverage in it in America and certainly within Canada as well. This is where two goalies get hurt and you don't have another goalie, and every team has an agreement that there's always an emergency goalie who if they play gets $500 – and $500? they get to keep their jersey yeah it's, okay. it's in the contract it's okay. in the agreement and this occurs but it doesn't occur like it did this weekend in Toronto is Carolina had two people injured and look it was absolutely extraordinary without question I've never seen it before Tavares took the giant John Tavares took that first shot and he looked like a goalie completely out of his league
9: well, that's because he was a goalie completely out of his league. So, for backstory here, the Carolina Hurricanes two goalies injured. They had to turn to the Leafs appointed uh, backup, who is the Zamboni driver. Oh, so it's and not the not even teams. The Carolina.
0: No, this happened in Toronto. In Toronto. Oh, in Toronto. So,
9: wow. But so in front of a home team, we embarrass ourselves like this. Uh, so <laughs> Carolina has to turn to the Marlies Zamboni driver, the Toronto Marlies Zamboni driver, Ted net before he had even faced a shot. He had an even bigger lead than he started with. He himself got a shot on net, banking it off the boards, and he made, I believe, seven saves in the third period. But Tom, if you remember the old Scott Stevens era New Jersey Devils, I have not seen a team play suffocating defense like that. There was you couldn't get a puck through to the net. Not that the Leafs are really trying. This will go down as perhaps more embarrassing than the four-one collapse in Game Seven to the Bruins. I got to do a
0: data check here in the end, (laughs) but look very quickly, and we'll expand on this later. Explain to our audience his junior B-ness. I was at a junior B level when I was know, Colorado a million years ago. But what does junior B now mean versus the minors or the NHL?
9: I would say junior B in a lot of cases means... You care about the sport. You stuck around to play it for a while, but you were not one of the top tier talented guys. You're just a guy who a loves chance. the sport.
0: Nobody had a chance at this level to play in the NHL. Essentially,
9: uh, yeah, that's you're not going to go okay. to junior being put. Austin in the NHL.
0: Matthews had the puck <laughs> off the left side, in his stomach. He shot it in. Even I could have stopped that. He
9: puck. he dotted the i in canes, as we say. <laughs>
0: see the suffering there uh, yeah, yeah. it's like if it was long apple calls here uh, <laughs> yesterday luke kawa thank you so much uh for that perspective on the markets and of course i truly an historic moment thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on apple podcasts soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer i'm on twitter at tom keen before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide on bloomberg radio